0: Welcome, everyone. This is Todd Curtis at the conversation at airsafe.com. And today, we're very pleased to have Mr. Zach Manchester, PhD candidate at Cornell University, and more important in the last few weeks, a person who's been behind a successful launch of a satellite. Not just any satellite, but one that was crowdfunded from, among other places, Kickstarter. So, without further ado, Zach, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Todd. Uh, good to be on.
0: So, for the folks out there who are thinking, what? Some grad student launched a satellite? Give us a short story on what happened here.
1: Well, I have to say, uh, grad students launching satellites is becoming increasingly common. It's not as crazy uh, as it maybe was 20 years ago now, thanks to uh, CubeSats. But, uh, so, yeah, to, to give a little background on Kicksat, which is uh, the project I've been working on for about the past, uh, I don't know, four or five years, um, we're, we've been working uh, at Cornell, uh, and I have to Give a, a sort of shout-out to my advisor, Mason Peck, who's kind of been the, the grand visionary, uh, visionary behind, uh, behind this concept. We've been working on these things we call chipsats uh, for about the last 10 years at Cornell. Uh, and the idea here is to try to make uh, the smallest satellite possible. And there's a number of reasons for doing that I can get into in a little bit. But at this point, we've got uh, a satellite we call the Sprite that's about three-and-a-half by three-and-a-half centimeters uh, and weighs about five grams, these little sort of single-board spacecraft. And it's got a solar panel, a little microcontroller, kind of a little computer. It's got a radio transceiver, uh, and you can put all kinds of different sensors on these things, the sort of sensors that, you know, uh, have been developed for smartphones and things like that. So we've got a, a gyro on there. We've got a magnetometer. We've got a couple temperature sensors. And you can really put just about any single chip sensor on these things that you
0: want. Uh, so, so hold on just a minute here. Sorry. I'm doing a little bit of calculation in my head here. You said about three and a half uh, centimeters on the side. That's like what? inch and a half? Uh, yep. Five, um, five grams, that's like uh, what? A sixth of an ounce?
1: Uh, sorry, I don't know the, the the ounce units there too well. I'm, I'm strictly a metric guy when it Very comes to... Very good.
0: but well, you're a metric guy, but are you a Ritz cracker guy? Is this something about the size of a Ritz cracker? Yeah, that's about right. Good golly. Hold on. You're saying to me that you have a satellite with a magnetometer with radio uh, uh, transmitters and other electronics for under the weight of of a Ritz cracker?
1: Yeah. So, uh, and the reason this is all possible is is really because of consumer electronics. Uh, this wouldn't have been possible even, you know, maybe even five years ago, or definitely not ten years ago. And the, the reason we can do this now is really because of smartphones. So, uh, pretty much all the chips on here are commercial off-the-shelf chips. So, uh, to give you an example, uh, the the main chip on on our Sprite satellite it's uh, apart from Texas Instruments called the CC four hundred and thirty and it's got a a radio and a microcontroller on a single chip. It's actually designed and marketed for use in car key fobs, so remote entry for your car, uh, which, uh, you know, they've been around for a little while, but these chips, you know, we're sort of borrowing all this stuff from the consumer electronics industry, and it makes it all super tiny and super cheap. The sensors we're using, the the gyro and the magnetometer, the magnetometer is used in smartphones to provide compass functionality and the, uh, the gyro is marketed for use in video game controllers to get that kind of tilting uh, sensing in game controllers. So all these chips are you know um, single-digit dollars uh, in terms of price, and they're super tiny and, and really super high performance given the the size and cost. And these things just didn't exist 10 years ago. And the reason we have all this great technology is, is yeah, because of consumer electronics, because of smartphones, because of video games, because of all this, this other stuff. So we're kind of... Uh, reaping the benefits of all this, uh, you know, advances in consumer technology here and bringing it into aerospace.
0: So I'm jumping the gun here in full disclosure. I'm one of the people who actually purchased one of your satellites for the recent launch. So I'm not someone who doesn't have a dog in this fight. But what you're telling me is that the cost of entry into space is like dropped by orders of magnitude.
1: Yeah, so there's there's a whole lot to say about that. I mean, that, that's something I'm really passionate about and something that uh, that I'd like to see happen. And it's been steadily, you know, there's been a lot of progress on that front in the last couple of decades. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, we're getting close to a, an era when, um, you know, the average person with the right kind of motivation could put a satellite into space. And, you know, for the last uh, about 10 years or so, CubeSats have, have sort of been the, the vanguard of that, Expansion of access to space. There, uh, if, if you're not familiar, right, a CubeSat is a s- standard for small satellites. They're 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cubes, weigh about a kilogram, so a couple pounds, and um, those cost about a hundred thousand dollars to launch into space right now. So, um, there's a couple, I think interesting points to make here one is that uh, a lot of people when they think and talk about expanding access to space and making it cheaper to get into space and all that they uh, they primarily focus on launch they they focus on you know it's so expensive to build and launch a rocket uh... we need to make rockets cheaper or we need to build things like space elevators you know to make getting to space cheaper uh, so, I think that is true to some extent, and you know, people like SpaceX are, are making you know, valiant efforts here and, and trying to reduce the cost of, of uh, launching things into space, but I think there's an important uh, you know, different perspective on that whole problem. Uh, if you just look at the, the price of launch, right? Um, there's, some, you know, there's some data you can get online for this stuff, but it's basically flat you know, for the last 10, 15 years, it adjusted for inflation. Launch prices haven't changed much. Uh, SpaceX is talking about reducing those prices by maybe a factor of two over the next few years, which is great. But, you know, there's real, that's a little dip in the curve, and then it you know keeps on going. So your $100,000 CubeSat launch is going to be $50,000. That's still, you know, still probably out of the, the price range for the average person.
0: So let's back up just a little bit here. You're saying the CubeSat. I want to get, have the audience have an idea of what this is. Since this is an audio show, I have to use uh, visual imagery. I happen to be hold, holding a coffee mug here, which, according to my tape measure, is roughly ten by ten by ten centimeters. So we're, you're talking a coffee mug size uh, cube set. Cost about a hundred grand to put into space.
1: Yeah, it's. I'd say a little bigger than a coffee mug, but yeah, that's that's yeah, hundred thousand dollars for that, uh, for the launch for that. An extra large
0: Starbucks coffee mug.
1: Yeah, and it's usually another hundred thousand dollars to build one of those. So. We're talking about, you know, a quarter million dollars for that start to finish, basically.
0: So, basically, your CubeSat project, although I understand you were funded in part by uh, NASA and and other entities, it was about a quarter million dollars of all in cost, not including the cost of the sweat equity you put into it.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably on the low end, honestly. If you wanted to put a market price on the whole project, um, it's probably more than that.
0: So, this, this... roughly quarter million-plus uh, project, is successful so far. I'm going to jump the gun a little bit here again. It is in orbit. Uh, it has 104 uh, smaller satellites within it, and it will be deploying in the early part of May 2014. But the biggest hurdle, building it, putting it on a, on a rocket, and putting it into orbit, that's all happened. The next stage is the deployment of these. And you describe the the small uh, uh, Sprite satellites you have 104, from what I understand from your documentation online. So, what are these 104 satellites going to do once they get deployed?
1: Uh well, at this point, so I guess maybe back up a little bit. the 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 point of the Kicksat mission at this point is to sort of demonstrate the uh, the feasibility of these really tiny spacecraft and and actually put them in space and and uh, and you know show that they work. And just to back up to that point, I was trying to make earlier about the the launch cost thing. So a lot of people talk about, you know, making the rockets cheaper. I think, though, uh, if you look at Moore's law and how much uh, smaller things are, you know, getting on the electronics front, I think that it makes more sense to try to shrink the satellite down if you want to make space access cheaper. So given that, you know, launching a pound into space is going to cost you, you know, X amount, pack more into the pound. So we're trying to pack in hundreds of our tiny satellites into the, that $100,000 CubeSat launch. Is that, that's essentially what we're doing. So uh, right now, for the Kicksat mission, this is the first time anything like this, anything this small, has ever flown in space. These things are, you know, a couple orders of magnitude smaller than the next smallest satellite that's ever flown. So uh, it's kind of uncharted territory, and we're really trying to put these things up there and prove that they can survive, prove that uh, we can communicate with them. So the big test here is is the communications. Uh, architecture with these things. We've developed uh, a whole lot of, of new stuff to try to talk to these things from space. Uh, a lot you,
0: of- you develop new technology, but I think you've also developed a network of volunteers around the world who are taking this technology, building their replicas of it, and are going to be receiving the signals on behalf of the project.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, I wouldn't say that I created that community. I think we've tried to tap into the the ham radio community. So we've got a whole bunch of ham radio operators uh, around the world who've been listening to satellites for years. And we've tried to, you know, uh, get them excited about KickSat and uh, and uh, have them listen into our stuff. And that seems to be going pretty well. We've had a whole bunch of people from all over the world. We've got guys in Japan uh all over europe south america the u.s we've got all kinds of people listening into the signals right now from from the Kiksat mothership the the bus up there it has a beacon and we've gotten all kinds of data down from it and we've got you know probably a dozen pretty uh pretty hardcore people uh really really uh skilled ham radio operators listening in for these things so we're hoping uh, to get some good data from this when it deploys
0: how hard was it to get them excited once you told them what the project was about uh, not too hard.
1: <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> a lot of these guys are pretty excited about it, so that's great having that that community.
0: Support. So you mentioned the CubeSat bus, the, the mothership. Uh, it's actually bigger than the ten by ten by ten uh, centimeter object, the CubeSat you were talking about. It's roughly the size of a loaf of bread. The mothership.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's actually what's called a three U CubeSat. So that ten by ten by ten cube, that's that's called a one U CubeSat or one unit of CubeSat, and you can actually get uh, one, two, three. And now even six U cubesats. So you can kind of stack those those cube units and make bigger cube sets. So ours is a three U, so it's ten by ten by thirty centimeters.
0: And when they deploy, when they start broadcasting, uh, how long will it be in orbit? Do you estimate?
1: Uh, not too long. They're going to be up for maybe a couple days, and that's uh, that's simultaneously you know necessary and kind of a bummer. Um, so the reason for that is that uh... these things are so small they're actually too small to track with ground-based radar so norad the guys uh... you know who track all this uh, space junk and and satellites on behalf of the u.s. government and make sure that you know there's not debris out there gonna that's gonna take out our weather satellites and all that kind of good stuff uh... are they're, they're a little nervous about this project because they can't actually see these things uh, once they're deployed, they're they're just too small. So, um, in order to sort of uh, put those people at ease and, and uh, make sure there were no space debris concerns, we had to put that into a very low orbit where everything would re-enter really quickly uh, to make sure that there wasn't uh, you know any issue with space debris. So, um, so yeah. To that end, uh, kicksats at about a 300-kilometer altitude orbit, which is lower than the ISS, and it's just about as low as you can be before you reenter. So uh, as pretty much, you know, right after these things are deployed, they're going to start to decay, and they'll come down within a day or two.
0: 300 kilometers is uh, roughly, uh, what, 200 miles? Yeah, like
1: 220, something like that, Miles, yeah.
0: Well, that seems to be uh, two hundred twenty. Seems to be high enough to for uh, something to stay in orbit for months and years. Uh, why is the drag uh, so much heavier on these that they will reenter after only a couple of days?
1: Uh, so uh, it's it's uh, it's actually for a cubesat at that altitude. That's only uh, you're you're only going to stay up for a couple of weeks. Uh, so kicksat the mothership, which you know is a cubesat, it's actually going to reenter uh, only about a week or two after the ChipSats. But yeah, to your point, uh, the ChipSats, they're because they're so small. Uh, the The sort of uh, metric that matters for orbital lifetime and and drag and all that is area to mass ratio so the way I think about it is there's you know really thin air up there there's still some air and that's where this drag comes from that pulls down satellites and uh, the more surface area you have the more drag you have right um, mm-hmm. and the the less mass you have the uh, the sort of more that uh, that drag force will affect you in, in the form of acceleration, right? It's like F equals Ma. So you've got the, you know, given a, given a force, uh, you divide by the mass, and that's your acceleration. So uh less mass means more acceleration. More surface area means more drag force. So basically, because the chipsats are so tiny and so light, they've got a really big area to mass ratio. Uh, Some aerospace people like to think about this, flip the other way, as ballistic coefficient. So, tiny ballistic coefficient, or large area to mass ratio. But basically, uh, that means you're going to come down really fast. So, yes, they they will definitely re-enter faster than a CubeSat, but the CubeSats are also not going to stay up there too long either at that, that height.
0: So, we're talking like real crunch time here. Once they deploy, the network on the ground has only a couple days to track all these.
1: Yeah, that's right. So this is kind of the moment of truth here coming up. This is kind of the last five years of my life, and uh, you know, all my work crunched into this two-day, uh, two-day do-or-die kind of situation.
0: So, were you down at Canaveral for the launch itself?
1: Uh, I tried to get down there. We actually flew down for one of the previous launch attempts uh, that got scrubbed. So the it launched what was this a, a week ago, Friday, uh, yesterday, and. Um, uh, we uh there was a previous launch attempt on um, the Monday before that. So we flew down for that Monday launch and uh the clock got down to T minus, you know, sixty minutes or so and they scrubbed the launch because of a technical issue with the rocket. Uh unfortunately we had to, you know, fly back up to uh Cornell-ing. I had a bunch of a bunch of work stuff I couldn't miss. So had to fly back and then uh we weren't actually expecting it to launch on the on that Friday attempt because the weather was bad all day. There was there were thunderstorms and all kinds of stuff, but I guess the weather cleared uh, just in time in the afternoon for the launch slot, and they were able to get it launched. So unfortunately, I had to watch it on TV.
0: Well, I was watching it in the same way, and uh, well, I'll just say personally, since I had something in writing on this rocket, I was a bit more emotionally invested in this one than the usual rocket launch. So just for the audience out there, we're actually recording this on april 26 2014 the launch was April 18th and one of the earlier launch dates surprisingly was April 1st was that is, am I not correct on that one
1: uh you probably are I kind of lost track there were the the launch slipped you know like a dozen times so there have been so many launch dates that I've lost track of some of the old ones but yeah I'm not surprised that April April 1st. I'm,
0: I'm kind of glad it didn't go on April 1st because I had a press release ready to go and my first two lines were Something on the order of, no, this is not an April Fool's joke. This actually happened.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm glad it didn't go off on April Fool's.
0: (laughs) So it it launched. It's in orbit. It's coming to fruition. Things are coming at a fast clip here. You've had five years of your graduate school life uh, wrapped up in this. You have roughly another year to go, you say, before you finish your dissertation? Yeah, hopefully. So as far as uh, nerve-wracking dissertation projects are going... Is this much more nerve-wracking than you thought or about as bad as you thought?
1: Uh, I think it's probably about as bad. I don't know. I I mean, this is something I've got, you know, obviously a lot invested to. Uh, this is, you know, years of my life and, and all kinds of craziness, uh, hours that, you know, have been put into this. So uh, I really want it to work. <laughs> uh, but I think that would have been the case no matter what. So, yeah, a little nerve-wracking.
0: Now, on a personal side, I've had the following happen to me. Once this successfully launched, I started telling people that, hey, you know, Airsafe.com launched a satellite, and they look at me like I just lost my mind. And I explain to them in rough terms what it's all about. And I'll have to tell you, it's really generated some conversations with people about space, about you know, what this project is about, what kind of crazy thing can you do in space. Getting them thinking about space in a way that I think has been dormant for a long time, because personally speaking, I thought that for years to come, space would be something for the mega corporations and and nation-states. Not for individuals, not for small companies. Uh, Obviously, you have an example here that could be replicated by others. And what do you think this portends for the future as far as what sort of creative things people will try and put into orbit?
1: Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something that I'm, you know, I'm personally really – you know, passionate about and and uh, think is is a really powerful thing. So you know, if you, I think a good analogy to to what's going on right now with space flight, you know, is a couple go back you know forty years or so with computers, and you had mainframes, and you know all the computers were owned by governments and big corporations, and then you know fast forward a, a decade or two, and you've got PCs. And no one knew quite what to do with them at first, but then, you know, people figured things out. We had the Internet, and now everyone's got, you know, a smartphone in their pocket. I think we're, we're kind of at the very early stages of something similar with spaceflight. Um, up to now, right, it's been nation states, big corporations, but we're, we're starting to see with small spacecraft and some of the, you know, new private launch opportunities, like with SpaceX, the costs are starting to come down. And I think um, these costs are going to continue to drop uh, quite a lot in the next few years. and uh, Just taking Kicksat as the example here, uh, one of our uh, Sprite satellites, our Chipsats, they're about $50 to make uh, you know, in terms of parts cost. And then uh, if you just do the math out on, on how big they are and how much current launch prices are, they're, they're less than $1,000 to launch. So we're talking about uh, start to finish a sub-$1,000 satellite right now with current technology, we're doing it now with KickSat. So in a couple of years, you'll be able to actually you know, maybe be able to go out to, to a, a hobby shop or a radio shack or you know, spark fun on the Internet and get a kit to put together your own satellite and get it launched for under $1,000. Uh, think-
0: more full disclosure here. Uh, back when I saw your Kickstarter project in 2011, uh, the going price for a satellite that had a, a customized signal going out was $300. So in essence, I got a heck of a deal.
1: Well, yeah, that's obviously subsidized by the fact that we got that free free launch through the NASA ALANA program. But, I I mean, really, the economic... Let's back up a little
0: bit. I don't think we talked about NASA oh, yeah. ALANA program specifically uh, during the broadcast. Could you explain that uh, briefly for us?
1: Yeah, sorry. So, um, KickSat, maybe we should just talk about the whole let's, fundraising let's, thing. Let's do that. Yeah, so, um, back in, in 2011, uh, a call for proposals came out for uh, something that NASA runs called the ALANA program. It stands for educational launch of nanosatellites it's a program they run that awards free cubesat launches to university programs so uh, at cornell we saw this and and you know we really wanted to fly some of our chipsat technology and, and demonstrate the stuff in space uh, so it looked like a really good opportunity and and we we wanted to go for it but part of the the you know what came along with that was it, it was a free ride, but it didn't include any money to actually build the the satellite hardware, to build the, the sp- spacecraft. So uh, looking at that, you know, this is around the time when I first heard about Kickstarter. I think it had been in the New York Times, and it was kind of gaining momentum and becoming, you know, a big thing uh, a couple of years ago now. And so saw Kickstarter, and it it seemed like the right fit for our project. It seemed like it could actually work. Um, so basically right, uh, basically simultaneously applied for this uh Alana launched through this NASA program, and then launched our Kickstarter campaign and put uh, kicksat up on Kickstarter. And uh, you know we're super lucky, and uh, you know had the good fortune to be awarded that free launch and also raise enough money to build everything on Kickstarter. And that's that's kind of the story.
0: And how much did your Kickstarter program raise?
1: We raised uh, just about seventy five thousand dollars.
0: So, tell me a little bit about the range of uh, folks who actually purchase satellites. I mean, I know I purchased one, but I have no idea about the other 103. Was it running the gamut from uh, individuals to schools, or who was doing uh, the purchasing? So, uh,
1: we had about 315 backers altogether, and that was for uh, all kinds of things, going from uh, having your name or, or engraved on the side of the satellite, and we actually uh, took the satellite structure uh, to a laser engraving machine and... and you know, had everyone's uh, name scrawled down there. We had that. We had uh, um, getting a uh, souvenir chipset, a little you know circuit board uh, mail in the mail at one level, and then we had the you know which which you did and a number of others did was the uh, you know getting your your own message transmitted from a, a chipset, and then we had at higher levels even where you could uh, actually get your own sort of developer's kit for a chipset where we send you a prototype and a programmer, and you could actually write your own code and design your own little experiment that we would then fly and a number of people did that as well. So we've had all kinds of people, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, hobbyists and enthusiasts, uh, people from all over the world. We've had people, uh, you know, in, in Europe, we've had a, a number of people in the UK, a number of people in Germany, a few people in Japan, um, all over the U S and, and all really all different kinds of people. We've had, um, a lot of ham radio kind of people, hobbyists, uh, along those lines. Um, Let's see. There's been uh, been I think one at least one teacher who's been uh, highlighting some of this stuff in in the classroom, uh, just to all kinds of stuff, you know. And it's it's a a, a wide swath of the population. And I think uh, you know space kind of captures the imagination and then gets people excited. So yeah, I don't think there's any one sort of prototype for the type of person that that uh, backed our project.
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you personally, when I saw it back in 2011, I thought. This looks like a high-risk, high-payoff sort of situation. If this thing actually comes to fruition and launches into space, if nothing else, if nothing else, this will be an awesome opportunity to open up a conversation with people about space. I can say, look, airsafe.com, tiny company that we are, we launch a satellite into space. If we can do it, so can you. And yeah, the, absolutely. And the analogy I use is uh, the old joke about you know, a dog chasing a car. What's the dog going to do once they've caught that car? Are they going to, uh, well, in this case, the dog being people who are enthusiastic about space, the car being the idea that, my God, if it were just cheap enough or if the technology were within reach, we'd do it. We keep chasing after this. We can't do it. We can't do it. Well, now we've done it. Are you going to pee on the tire or are you going to figure out how to drive and take the car somewhere else? That's where, in my opinion, where the average enthusiast is right now. The car has been caught. What are you gonna do now, dog? Uh,
1: absolutely. So I think you know what I'm trying to do here is is create the the technology to do this and sort of solve some of the hard problems that have been holding this back for a long time and and uh, and then put it all out there. So our project kicks at the the design for the the sprites and and all the technical stuff, the code, the the circuit designs. Everything's online on GitHub, so you can actually go and and get those files and get those schematics and uh, you know, with a little work and uh, trip to your Radio Shack and, and buying some electronic parts, you can build your own chipset. It's all up there. So, um, what's a GitHub? What, uh, GitHub is a is a hosting site for open source projects. That's that's pretty popular these days. So, uh, go on github.com and type in Kicksat, and you'll be able to find our project and find all of our our technical. Uh, Information you can get the, the the circuit schematics, the the design files, the code that's on there. All that stuff's up there.
0: So, so, so what we're talking about here is that your your project, the the plans for it, is open source. There's no licensing fees if somebody wants to build something like this.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So that the idea is we're trying to put all this out there and and put it within reach of people. And then uh, you know I hope this lives on beyond my PhD thesis. I hope this isn't just a one off thing. Uh, you know, cause I think we're, we're starting to try to like open Pandora's box here and put these things in the hands of average people and see where it goes. And I think, uh, you know, I kind of have this blind faith that, that people are going to come up with cool things to do with this stuff. Uh, I, you know, right. A lot of people asked me, you know, at the beginning of this Kickstarter thing, oh, what are you going to do with a, you know, a five gram little satellite like this? What could it possibly be useful for? This is just going to be junk. But, uh, you know, we have some ideas. There's a number of interesting applications in, you know, space weather sensing and and ionospheric physics and stuff like that, atmospheric research. There's a a whole bunch of science applications, uh, I think, on the near-term horizon for this. But uh, beyond that, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in academia and we kind of have the blinders on and we only look at these science problems. But who knows, you know? Uh, what, what people will come up with, what hobbyists will come up with, and what might catch on, what might, you know, become useful to people. So I think that if if, if it's there, you know, if, if people can do this, if the technology's there, and it's cheap enough, and it's accessible enough, people will come up with cool things to do with these. And I think that's that's kind of what I'm looking for. I want to see what other people come up with and, and just put it out there.
0: Well, this is a low-Earth orbit demonstration project. What prevents this from becoming a geosynchronous uh, project, or for that matter, something that's... Uh shot out of uh, Earth's uh, gravitational pull and toward the sun or toward the moon or what have you? So
1: there's some hard technical challenges uh, with putting these things in higher orbits or, or farther away. Um, what you're probably going to end up with is, a, is an architecture where you kind of have a mothership that acts as a, a relay, and you can sort of deploy these from a mothership somewhere far away, have them collect data, and then relay it through the, the bigger mothership satellite back to the Earth. And there's a lot of uh, potential applications, too, uh, you know, in planetary exploration where we send these things to Mars and have them uh, enter the Martian atmosphere and, and do all kinds of sensing and then relay that back to the to sort of the, the mothership and, and then back to Earth. So there's definitely, you know, uh, more applications farther away, you know, than, than low Earth orbit. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I don't know.
0: But right now your demonstration project doesn't have a mothership connection, as, as it were. Nothing to communicate between <laughs> the sprites and the main CubeSat.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, they actually communicate directly to the ground, and uh, the the biggest single uh, technical challenge uh, in in making kicks that happen uh, was to uh, you know to make that communications link close uh, over over big distance with these really tiny radios and, and low power, and also to make it happen with hundreds of them at the same time. So it's a it's a kind of an analogous uh, problem to uh, to cell phones where you've got you know, thousands of cell phone users. You have a limited amount of spectrum that everyone has to share, right? And you have to deal with uh, poor link conditions in some situations, right? You got a lot of noise, a lot of uh, interference, and stuff like that. So that's the the main challenge that we we tried to solve. And we borrowed ideas from the from the cell phone industry, cell phone standards, and and also some ideas from GPS to make this work. But basically, yeah, with cheap hardware again, and I think this is part of the you know same same kind of story. Where if we can build a fifty-dollar satellite, launch it for you know a thousand bucks, it doesn't make any sense to do that if you still need like a hundred thousand-dollar ground station to talk to the thing, right? So mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of this, on the ground side, there's also been a whole bunch of work, uh, also enabled by uh, by cheap consumer electronics, and you can put together a ground station for uh, less than two hundred bucks of of hardware and a laptop, and with that ground station, you can listen to all you know, hundred or so of these simultaneously. You can simultaneously communicate with this entire, you know, cloud of chipsets in orbit with, with a $200 ground station.
0: Wow. You know, I, I was talking with someone the other day when I described the project. Uh, she said, you know, I'm a big fan of science fiction. been reading it since I was a kid, and I told her I was too. And I thought for a second. I said, you know, I've read a lot of science fiction. None of those stories ever mention a $300 satellite. So in essence, you have allowed something to exist in real life that's beyond the science fiction of my experience.
1: Uh, so, you know, a lot of space people are big science fiction fans, and I have to uh, say my, my advisor, Mason Peck at Cornell, he's a big science fiction fan, and uh, it was something that he says that I think is super interesting is that uh, he feels like, science fiction has kind of failed us uh in the last uh, couple decades you know back in the 50s and 60s at the dawn of the space age we had these you know really ambitious science fiction stories that you know presaged a lot of crazy new technology and and in a sense you know you can you can think about uh guys who are you know young you know future engineers who read this stuff as kids you know then getting inspired and going off and trying to build this stuff but uh you know, in more recent decades, we haven't had that, that uh, base of, you know, really adventurous and really uh, interesting science fiction to, to inspire people. And he thinks that that's, you know, kind of a, a problem and that we need better science fiction authors to, to sort of uh, push us in the right directions.
0: Well, I'm going to hold on to the thought that if science fiction is going to fail us, the science and engineering fact, like what you all have been doing, can succeed in at least sparking the imagination of people younger than ourselves. Well, we're trying. Thanks. So on that note, I want to uh, see if there's uh, any other closing thoughts you might have. Again, this is a few weeks before the deployment of the Sprite satellite, so the mission isn't over yet. There's still some big hurdles to to come up, but things are looking up so far.
1: Yeah, so far, so good. And I have to uh, give a big thank you to the uh, this global community of ham radio operators who've been uh Listening to our satellite for us and sending us all uh, all the data that we've been collecting. You know, up, up at Cornell, we've got one ground station in Ithaca, New York, and we get uh, you know we get a couple passes a day and we get a few packets of data a day. But thanks to you know a dozen or more ham radio people around the world, we've been getting you know ten times that because there's guys all over the world listening to these uh, these, these signals and, and sending us uh, sending us the data. So I have to say a big thanks to everybody who's been doing that. Um, and, you know, so far so good. We'll see what happens here in another week and, and a few days. And uh, thanks for your support, uh, you know, personally uh, of our project. Thanks for believing in our project. And, you know, I, a lot of people said this was crazy a couple of years ago. And, and so far, you know, we've we've been able to pull it off. So uh, with that, thanks.
0: Well, you're most welcome. And I'll have to say, and once again, when I saw this project, I was one of those persons who thought, this is absolutely nuts. And I said <laughs> right after that, I got to get on board. So, uh, you know, sometimes embracing the crazy is a good thing. And with that, uh, we'd like to thank you all out there in the the audience. And uh, we hope you check out the Kicksat program. Uh, We'll have links on uh, the the website at airsafe.com where you can go check it out. And if you uh, don't see those, just go online. And what should we search for? What uh, website should we go to for more information?
1: So my uh, main website is kicksat.net and that has links to a whole bunch of other pages with, with other information. Uh, so I have a blog on Kickstarter, uh, and then there's also the GitHub page that we talked about that has all the technical stuff. And then we also have a mailing list for hams to, uh, to talk about ground stations and uh, to post data. So you can actually subscribe to the mailing list and follow along as data comes in from the satellite from all over the world. Uh, so yeah, to get links to all of that stuff, check out kicksat.net
0: For more information including links to all the resources mentioned by Zach, please visit kicksat.airsafe.com. That's kicksat.airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.